Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Today, we have a guest who has an amazing history. Let me just tell you a little bit about him. He's the former premier of Newfoundland for the Progressive Conservative Party, the last remaining signatory of the original Canadian Constitution to include the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982. So when you think about this, this man understood the very purpose for our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, where it should fit, how we should look at it as Canadians, and how appalled he is at what is happening now. You are going to enjoy this interview. And we're not going to allow this nation on the northern part of North America to go down the drain because we have people who've gotten hungry for power and have discarded the individual freedoms that you and I own. They are ours. There's none two of us the same. That's why individual rights and freedoms are so important, right? Because it's you as a person, you as an individual, not you as a family, not you as a group, Okay? Not you as part of some other organization, not you as part of the province. It's you as an individual Canadian. Possess these rights. That's what's important. Well, it's great today to have with me the Honorable Brian Peckford. And thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Now, you have been a powerful national voice criticizing our governments for the way they've managed this pandemic. Yeah, no, no question about that. And I, I, I come at it from both the, the scientific point of view as well as the legal and constitutional point of view. Uh, from all of the experts that I have consulted, uh, both in Canada and around the world, it's clear that there are alternatives to the way that the governments went about mitigating this virus. Uh, and that included, for example, their own emergency measures organizations, which they didn't use and were employed for the last 10, 20 years to be ready to just respond to uh, emerges, so-called emergencies like this. And they didn't use them. And, and the plans are there sitting on somebody's desk in every provincial capital. Right. So one of the things you've been saying uh, already is that to declare an emergency and then begin to take away people's freedoms is a major deal. And, uh, you know, you made a comment, I was hearing you on another interview where you talked about it's still only a virus that kills less than 1%, 99% survival rate. And if, if we allow the government to do this, how often will they do this in the future? Well, this is the huge big danger that we face. Because if uh, myself and others who are fighting this are not successful, if we were unsuccessful, then this becomes a precedent which can be used in the future, which therefore dilutes going back to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms itself. So the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in our democracy is very much at stake in, in the resolution to what happens as it relates to this. And you're right. When we wrote Section 1, which was the override, which says, you know, governments in certain circumstances can override these precious rights that we just provided to every single Canadian. It was meant in terms of if the state was in peril, if it was an insurrection, if there was a war, something that threatened the state. Well, as you were saying, 
uh, a virus or a recovery rate or survival rate is over 99% and the fatality rate is less than 1% is hardly a threat to the state. So they're trying to put a round peg in a square hole. This just does not fit. But where we really uh, get them is I go on to argue so that uh, they really, when, I, when I'm, I'm finished, I don't think they have much of a leg to stand on. I, I say, okay, I'll take you on. And for argument's sake, I'll say this applies. This section one applies and you can override. Even in that circumstance of war and insurrection and all that, they have to make meet four tests. Demonstrably justify that what they're doing is worthwhile. In other words, the benefits outweigh the costs. Do it in a law. Well, they've done it all over the place in old laws and, and so on. They haven't brought in a new law. It must be within reasonable limits. Well, reasonable limits, the limits keep changing every month or so when they change the the, the health order. So there's no reasonable, there's no way to get a handle on reasonable limits. And that's not what the Constitution says or Section 1 says. And finally, test four is all of these three must be done in the context of a free and democratic society. And for you and me as Canadians, that means parliaments have to be involved because our democracy is a parliamentary democracy, which means the parliaments, all 14 of them, should be involved in this, our elected representatives. We didn't elect the public health officers. We never elected the doctors in the Department of Health. We elected our ministers and our MPs and our MLAs. And there should be standing committees throughout the country studying this and looking at all of those alternatives and all of the science, just not the science, which is narrowly focused by one government. So not only did they not go through the right steps, the censorship to keep so much information away from the public through the mainstream media is awful. Uh, I think this is the other part of the situation, which is really, I call it the four horsemen myself. I call it the big government, the big tech, right? The big media and the big pharma, right? And on the media side, they signed an, an agreement last year called the Trusted News Initiative. All the big news organizations all over the world and said, we'll decide. We are God. We'll decide what we disseminate in news about the vaccine and about the so-called pandemic. In other words, we're not getting all of the news. We're only getting the news that they want us to hear or see. And that is a, a complete that is a complete abdication of the role of the press in a democracy. Now, because of all of this, you've been meeting with lawyers and uh, as a team, you've decided to undertake a major lawsuit. Uh, tell me about that. What is it specifically you're going after? Because there's so many things you could go after. But tell me a little <laughs> bit about this. Yes, exactly. Well, we chose to go after a federal mandate because this particular federal mandate has national repercussions because it's a travel mandate that covers all of Canada. And so, therefore... We chose that because every single Canadian could understand it quite simply. I can't go and see my relative uh, in Winnipeg. I can't go, right? I have a business in Vancouver and I have an office in Toronto and I can't go back and forth one to the other if I, unless I'm vaccinated. And so this is something which is quite national in its scope and it's their travel mandate. And the, the, this is really interesting because it, 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 it's, it's, 
I, I don't know how, how to, how to ex explain it because when I, when I tell you, they did it under the Aeronautics Act. And the Aeronautics Act, if you read it, talks about the safety of the plane. Does the plane have the wheels okay? And the wings okay? And the engine's been tested? You know, is the navigational system all right? You know, is the whole maintenance system of the airplane uh, safe? That's what the Aeronautics Act is about. It's got nothing to do with anything else with people traveling from one place to another on train or ship or plane. And so we're both, we're arguing to start with that the act that they use to try to enforce or bring in the, the travel ban doesn't apply. It's ultra virus. It doesn't apply. It, it's a completely inappropriate act to try to bring in the travel ban in the beginning. So, you know, it's quite blatant in our view. But then we go on, of course, and argue that, uh, you know, there's a section of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Section 6, Mobility, where every Canadian has the right to travel anywhere in Canada or leave Canada. And of course, this particular mandate is a complete violation of this section of the, of the charter. As well, of course, it violates equality before the law because some people can fly and other people can't, right? Life, liberty, and security of the person. So it violates several sections of the charter, not just the mobility section. So we, we should have some fun with this before the day is over. What advice do you have for Canadians in all of this? I mean, we admire those like you and others who are taking a stand and uh, like, I mean, just saying, okay, enough is enough. But I think they literally have got the average Canadian paralyzed. There's nothing we can do. Uh, it's gone too far. Or they've got them convinced, protect me, protect me with whatever mandate you need to do. Um, what should Canadians be doing? Canadians should be writing their prime minister by, by old snail mail, by the way. Snail mail is still the best way to go because these emails and, and other uh, technology stuff can easily be deleted and they can easily make excuses that got lost in cyberspace. But if you've got something physical and you send it to a post office box in Ottawa or any of the provinces, to any of the ministers or whatever, it goes to that post office box physically. It's picked up physically by the male people of the government. It's taken to a mail room. It's opened and then, you know, collated and so on, and then sent to the minister's office physically. Okay. okay. So therefore, it's a better chance to have an impact if you send your letters by good old snail mail. Who would have thought that today we'd be back to talking to snail mail? The other thing they can do, they can... Uh, help support uh, organizations like the one that's fighting for me, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. They can also attend the various protests that are happening at various legislative uh, buildings across the country. There's Action for Canada, Take Action Canada, Vaccine Choice, the COVID, Canadian COVID Care Alliance are four that I can mention right off yeah. the top of my head where people can uh, get involved and support. Now, why do you think so many people think there's nothing really wrong here? Uh, this is, you know, let's all just chill out. It's going to go away. Why are they like that? And, and what's your response to someone who might be listening going, you guys are really overreacting? I say to them, I think I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think you, our, our Charter of Rights or Bill of Rights, whatever you want to call it, is only 40 years old. In the United States, their Bill of Rights was passed in 1791. Hmm. And so the Americans have had a culture 
of individual rights and freedoms and how sacrosanct they are. Okay, Canadians have not had a lot of history as it relates to how important individual rights and freedoms are for an ongoing democracy. I mean, I don't think the democracy of the United States would have lasted as long as it did if it didn't have that Bill of Rights in it back in 1791, for example. And if you go back through the history of the United States and see the litigation that happened, defending their right to bear arms, defending their right of free expression, right, and a whole bunch of other things, uh, I don't think the America, America would, have, would, have, would, have, would have stood. And that's the same way in our case. Uh, we depended on common law, British common law, from 1867 until 1982. And, of course, that, that's, that is a variable, right? Is there a custom? Is there a convention that I can use to defend myself? Nothing written, all unwritten. And so we realized that we needed more certainty in our, in our individual rights and freedoms and have it put in a document like the Americans had because you have greater certainty then to get justice from the system. And if it's in the Constitution in particular, that gives you a better chance because it's likely not to be changed. We never knew that in 40 years the governments would do this. So I say to people, I understand, but I want you to now enlarge your mind a little bit and remember that we're only 40 years old in this Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and this is the first real test of it. And what they don't understand very often is that it's not a federal act or a provincial act or a municipal act. They have difficulty distinguishing between a law and the Constitution. And that's the other thing I explained to them. If you look at it, most jurisprudence, and I have it right here in my library before me here, by many scholars all over the world, from Israel to, to the United States, anywhere where there's a democracy, you can go back in France to Montesquieu, and you can go to England to John Stuart Mill, uh, you can go to all these great scholars right up to, to today. The Constitution is defined, is implicit in the Constitution is permanence. Implicit in the Constitution is the rule of law, constancy, the rule of law. And of course, I should mention that in their own, and, I, and they don't know this, and hardly anybody mentions this, only me, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms doesn't even begin with Section 1. It begins with a one-sentence preamble, whereas this country is founded upon what? The supremacy of God and the rule of law. Hmm. And what's after that? A period? No, a colon. Because what it says is everything that comes after here has to acknowledge these principles. Wow. Wow. Well, very cool. Why, why don't more people mention this? So our, our, our Charter of Rights and Freedoms not only being um, abrogated or violated as relates to the exact provisions, it's being violated because the decisions so far have had no respect whatsoever for the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule yeah. of law. And that they have to be taken to task for that in the higher courts. When I talk with people, um, they sometimes get mixed up between the American Constitution and the Canadian. And it seems as though, and I'd like your thoughts on this, that when I talk with Canadians, they see what the group wants as more important than the individual. Now, when I look at that, my thinking is, and I'd like you to correct me if I'm wrong, the greatest thing that group has, any group, should be their individual rights. Correct? Could you comment on that? Absolutely. The, the basic foundation of democracies has to do with individual rights and freedoms. And this is where 
we've gone astray by not having it in a constitution, a written constitution for all of those years from 1867 to 1981-82. That is a big, big mistake in our history. There's no question about it. And that's why they think that way, because over time, as you know, and I know, the governments of Canada have taken over more and more of our lives. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so it's become statism and statism relates to group rights. Statism doesn't relate to individual rights. Right. Statism is the opposite, right? Of individual rights and freedoms. The more statism, the less individual rights and freedoms. And that's the great, uh, the, the great rub as it relates to Canada. Right. And now that we put the charter rights in uh, and freedoms in the constitution, it, it is there as a bulwark to demonstrate that our democracy is just not a democracy of statism and groups and groups and lobby groups. It's a society of individuals. I say on my speeches, every snowflake is different. So is every individual different. And that's why individual rights and freedoms are so important. There's a fundamental here, a very fundamental principle of human existence, a very important principle of human existence. And that is, the importance of the individual, right, in creating innovation and in creating creativity, right, in, in ensuring, right, that they're not just a cog in some wheel, right? These, these are very important in order for society to sustain itself over the long term. Anybody can stay in anything over a short term, you know, with statism or totalitarianism or authority or whatever. And in China's case, you know, now for a, a, a number of decades. But over the longer term, in order for glue, yeah, uh, good glue is good constitutions, right? Is good keeps keeps the country together. So when you look at Canada now and our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, is it done as well as the Americans have in their laws to keep individual rights and freedoms? Yes, absolutely, yes. absolutely. Yes. Our section, our section, uh, our section two, as it relates to freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. Freedom assembly, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, all in section two. Oh yeah, no question. Ours are well detailed. And we owe a little um, debt of gratitude to John Diefenbaker for that. The prime minister in 1960, the conservative prime minister from Saskatchewan, who brought in, and people will always argue with, well, we already had the Bill of Rights. So why did we do the char charter rights? John Diefenbaker did bring in a Bill of Rights and he had all these enunciated, all these freedoms and and, and, and rights. So his government did a great job, but it was only a federal act and only applied, applied to federal jurisdiction. It didn't apply to the provinces and anybody who lived in the provinces, like in education and health, right? Natural resources, anybody who, who came under provincial jurisdiction in those areas, it didn't apply to them. So it was only a partial victory. That's why we did what we did in 82 to number one, make it for all Canadians and put it in the constitution because his act was only a federal act, which could be changed by any majority government. When you look at this as a whole to the citizens of Canada, we should all defend everybody, every individual person, even if we don't agree, even if we don't like their belief system, religious system, whatever they feel or think, it is crucial to the future of Canada that we help them and protect their right to these freedoms. Otherwise, we're going back into this grouping of trying to get everybody to do what my tribe thinks. Exactly. You hit the nail right on the head. Remember what Voltaire said. 
the French writer and partial philosopher, if you will, right? I disagree with you, sir, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Yes. And that's what we're getting at here. We're getting at the whole core of this so that you have the freedom of worship. You have the freedom to speak, right? And I have the freedom to speak and worship or conscience or whatever, or to assemble or to associate or to travel and equality before the law. One of the other big uh, provisions in the, in the charter the section 15, every person in Canada. I mean, isn't it? It's glorious. To me, every time I, I, I never get tired of saying it, right? Every Canadian, right? From Prince Rupert to Bonavista, from the Calibre to Niagara, every Canadian has the right of equality before the law. Holy Moses. I mean, how much, how much glor more glorious can you get than that? And doesn't that speak to democracy? Doesn't that speak to fairness? Doesn't that speak to people? Not just groups, right? This is this is the foundational principle of any kind of decent democracy. Could you speak to this? One of one of my thoughts as I've been trying to think my way clear through a lot of this is Canadians seem to have this desire for security to such a degree, and then we always look to government to give us that security and. I was speaking to a South African who moved here and then left because he said, here's what he said. He said, you want so much security and the government to give it to you, but your freedoms, you have to give up your freedoms to allow them to make you so secure. Is, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We've become so dependent upon government. We're over government, govern almost in every single province and our municipalities and so on. It, 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 it really does lead to a dangerous pathway, which diminishes individual rights and diminishes democracy and increases statism. There's no question that, that, that like your South African friend, there is the sense that so many Canadians in this particular circumstance have sided with the government and security by the government uh, with the relinquishment of their own individual rights and freedoms that is extremely dangerous, that they don't see the bigger picture and what's the fundamentals of democracy. Now, you've been a premier, you've been involved in governments for so many years, and what would your advice be to leaders? I'm talking about premiers, the prime minister. Like, this has become a mess. This has been pushed down the road to the place where it's divided Canada uh, in so many ways with the Freedom Convoy, which seems to have been, we, we are getting like literally notified from people around the world how it's bringing hope, uh, but what should leaders do? Because there's, there's pride, you know, people are proud of what they've done. Like, I don't know, what, what's the way forward in this conundrum? It's very, it's very difficult because they've dug such a large hole that, yep. uh, you know, it's very hard from the come out of it. But, you know, Ron, I wish we had in, in Canada one premier who was like Ron DeSantis in the, in the United States in Florida. What he did when he started to see the thing clearly after the first five or six months of the pandemic, he, he listened, he brought in all of these experts from the Great Barrington Declaration and other places. Yes. He brought in people from outside and had a public meeting besides mm -hmm. meeting with them privately. He had a public meeting and he said, here's the full signs. So they got to get outside of their cocoons. If they had started with, instead of starting one size fits all, and just listening to the Department of Health and I'd listen to their other departments and their other emergency measures association, uh, organizations, we wouldn't have been in this mess. 
we wouldn't have gone down that road. And so sadly, they need to go back to square one and they need to start looking outside the box, their box. They need to start looking outside their box and becoming more enlightened as to, because it's passed them by. All the new data and science has passed them by and they still don't realize that they're, they're talking about something that's completely inappropriate and, and yeah. now out, out, of, out of step altogether. I think you've hit on something there very cool. If a leader like a premier or a prime minister uh, somewhere, uh, if they were to do exactly that, bring together the latest scientists, the leaders, the, the people who know and have studied this and have all this proof, bring them into the country, get out of our cocoon, and then say, hey, you know, I mean, if they need to save face, then we've done the best we could and we're realizing we need to listen outside of the uh, government-appointed doctors, government-appointed health officials, etc., and then relook at everything and then make the decisions. Like, there is definitely a way forward because if we continue to, to do this where Canada has got some of the it's kind of the worst, uh, what's the word, laws or mandates uh, yeah, in the yeah. world uh, yeah. for travel and all the rest. If we don't, that's the way out, I think. Just bring in some experts, get into a yeah. public square, and let's move on. Absolutely. And we have them in Canada, too. We have yes. them in Canada. Dr. Eric Payne in Alberta. Dr. Roger Hutchinson in Alberta. They've spoken out, and they're part of an organization that I chair called Taking Back Our Freedoms. And Dr. Hodgson is part of it. Dr. Eric Payne is part of it. Dr. Francis Christian was part of it. Uh, um, um, Dr. Paul Alexander is a part of it. Uh, these, these are, uh, Dr. Brian Bridal is a part of it. They're all researchers who have Beautiful. shown the way forward as to what the governments have done wrong and published the papers. It's there in black and white. And there's a, there's a doctor, a professor at Simon Fraser University back in April 21, uh, published a report which, which showed that the cure was worse than the disease, based upon 80 studies that he looked at around the world. So very early on, and he says in his paper, very early on in 2020, after the first eight weeks of the so-called pandemic, after about eight weeks, it was clear that what the Imperial College in London was saying, that all the leaders were following, was wrong, that you know millions would die, and then they referred to this University of Washington in the, the state of Washington. There was a group there that had these models. And then the US government and other governments around the started to listen to them. And they were wrong. This all happened within the first eight weeks because they were putting out these models and these things to show you what was going to happen. And all the science, so right from day one, that science was wrong, right? And then we had the PCR test was proved to be in Canada because of the rotations that we used. It's 95% ineffective. There's only five, three to five percent of the cases uh, that actually test positive, that are, you know become hospitalization or, or sick people. The rest are, are false positives. So, uh, so, so we had the PCR test, and then the mountain of evidence on the masks, because the aerosol size of the virus is way smaller, something like I forget how many, 14 times smaller than in, than than all the masks that are on the market. So it, the masks doesn't prevent it at all. And here we're all going around, they're going around wearing masks outdoors and all kinds of strange and weird things, completely anti-science. And here we are in 2022, and now we're acting in a medieval fashion. We're not acting in a modern fashion, we're acting in a medieval fashion. 
you know, before the Enlightenment, back in 1200 and 1300 AD is the way we're acting today. I mean, the, the Greeks, the Athenians had a better handle on this in 595 BC. So, you know, we're, we're, having, we're having our problems in mm -hmm. coming to grips with, and uh, uh, our own success has been our own failure because the media that we've allowed to grow and the big farmer that we've allowed to grow have become too large, too dominant, and therefore are taking over a lot of society erroneously with wrong information. Wow. Well, our time is up, but man, I could go on talking a long time with you, Brian. Thanks for being with us. And, Thank you very uh, much for having me. Our prayer is wisdom and guidance for, you know, all that goes on in the future with the lawyers and, and the lawsuit and the things that are going on. Thank you again. Thank you, sir. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.